This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Sympathy on SBI Audio. This season is made possible through the generous support of Patreon subscribers. To become a patron, visit Drifter Sympathy on Facebook and hear more music at holysons.bandcamp.com. Welcome back to the history of home recording. Today we've put ourselves in a near impossible situation by having to chart something that can't really be charted. It is chaos by definition. After the technology of home recording becomes so cheap that really any kid anywhere can express themselves freely into the night, there's really no cohesive map that could satisfy any fan of the various movements around the world. Luckily, we have our Stevie Moore out in Siberia. Having begun in 1966, he bridges all of our movements. But after our Stevie, the underground explodes in millions of directions because technology and punk came together to rip open the ceiling of what anyone might anticipate another human being could transmit from their basement. Down in the crevices of each neighborhood, kids piece together their own school of thought, their own micro-religion. And because of the sheer variety of voices, you could have arrived at this specter of total freedom through any entry point. Maybe your lo-fi gateway moment was the Young Marble Giants in 1979 in Wales. Maybe the first thing you heard was the Tall Dwarves in 1984 in New Zealand. Or maybe.
maybe you were in Ohio in 84 and you saw the mice live and became a devotee of Bill Fox. And certainly you could do an entire podcast on the raw textures that the Velvet Underground made cool. But that's for idiots writing books that sit in borders that your grandma buys you. Today we are talking about a true hero, someone who offered up an actual spiritual counterpoint to the same old spineless jockeying for fame and threw themselves in the cauldron of the four track. Our Stevie Moore was growing up in a different time when the underdog had yet to be cherished on any level. Even the countercultural heroes of the 60s were completely comfortable pursuing ultra-fame. And it'd be decades before record nerds would pull out obscure loners like Skip Spence and turn them into massive underground heroes. I think the appearance of Hazel Adkins basically started the dominoes falling. It's a very good example of a punk using the science that Les Paul put out into the world to create a raw document. And even though this begins in a small cultural vacuum, the cramps pulling Hazel Adkins' aesthetic out into a marketable movement is a profound shift. At the heart of this shift is the idea of low-tech becoming cool. Hazel Adkins was driven by a need to communicate and wasn't necessarily concerned with the aesthetic of his medium. One of the great hallmarks of home recording itself is a kind of desperation. But the way his fans picked up the signal and what they did with it was a different thing entirely. To be trashy and raw is one thing, but to be a listener who enjoys the idea of being trashy and raw is kind of the beginning of a new culture. And it's definitely the beginning of a new artist culture that wants to be like their punk heroes. Part of the radical nature of our Stevie Moore's career is that he anticipated he would be useless within the current market, so he built his own private world for his own therapy and entertainment. And by doing that and acknowledging his island status, he not only grants himself a kind of license that major label recording artists wouldn't have had, but he opens up the ceiling as to what is a singular artist? What do songs need to be? Can't they be anything? Basically, the opening of his first official record, he's pissing in the toilet, introducing himself. It really doesn't sound like this is somebody who thinks they're going to make it. 
It's me, and I'm in the bathroom now, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself. Robert Stephen Moore is my name. <clears throat> I was born in 1952, January 18. I think it was about three in the afternoon. It was a Saturday, that's for sure. The ceiling's obviously been opened up as punk music begins to morph what it means to make music in the garage. Garage bands had originally used low-tech gear to record themselves, but it was all within the mind of becoming the Beatles or Love or whoever represented the countercultural takeover at the time. Once you get to punk music, everything opens up wide as technology gives them the ability to literally say anything they want on any drug they want at any hour of the night at their own home. everything just kind of crawled through there with it. And certainly there was a precedent for minor threat if you already have the Clash, Gang of Four, Sex Pistols, Wire, things like that. But there was something that nobody could predict, and it might be like a kind of madness that was able to creep through the sides. Take something like Jandek. Japanese even. People not necessarily making what you think of as punk, but inspired by the fact that they realized anyone could express themselves without proper training, were flooding through the gates. And since there was no real reward structure developed yet for underground music, this period is really characterized by freaks becoming aware of other freaks without any real care that they might be forgotten. I mean, a fan of the Shags is just a fan of the Shags. They don't really care if the rest of the world becomes aware of them. Even with a cursory understanding of that time and atmosphere, we can already see that it took barely any time after the Sex Pistols' appearance for other people to pick up guitars with a completely different intention but spurred on by that kind of freedom. American music of this period always seems to have a very specific grimy dirtiness to it. Whereas overseas, the British always seem to rein things into a certain kind of stark minimalism. Thank you. 
in Scotland, there was a guy named Thomas Lear that was recording in his basement after leaving his punk band, something a lot of people were doing once they got the freedom to use the machines themselves. For the first time, someone dreaming in their bedroom wouldn't necessarily have to rely on the neighboring kids to realize some collective vision. They could develop their own textures alone. Dropping that in 1978 out of his own apartment on 650 copies and having the enemy awarded the single of the week, I don't think that Thomas Lear is given quite enough credit for setting up what the world would celebrate just a few years later with people like Depeche Mode as they defined the UK synth-pop sound. And his records leave behind a really poignant picture of what it means to be alone before your time, recording all by yourself for yourself. I see the time. It's 
Thomas Lear is some sort of evidence that you can be influential without being visible at the same time, which is odd when you're trying to scientifically dissect who's important. When you talk about home recording, why are you going to choose R. Stevie Moore over Bruce Hack, a pioneer in home electronics and recording his own kind of fantasy loner records? This is Bruce Hack. My music encompasses all forms produced electronically on synthesizers, which I have built. Thomas Lear and Bruce Hack are just as important as anybody else in this list, but they are less involved in the cohesive movement that became a style and an attitude. The style I'm talking about pivoted on the fact that low-tech became lo-fi, meaning that no longer would this just be a poor man's device. This would now be a major factor in the facilitation of anarchy. The understanding that if you have the ability to express yourself with complete freedom outside of any constraints, then you have no excuse but to tell the truth. And when you do that, this inevitably will affect a different part of the brain, which will then condition people to listen to music differently. The entire course of what is marketable is bound to change. I'll never marry. I'll never wed. Nobody wants to kiss you when you're dead. Nobody wants to lie in bed with you when your flesh is rotting. After being inspired by the first punk wave, a guy named Gerard Cosloy started a zine called Conflict in 1979. That zine was picked up by a distributor whose in-house label was Homestead Records, who ended up hiring him. And as a young person, seeing what was going on on the ground floor, he helped to guide and sign bands that had no respect for the basic formula of rock bandism in the 80s. Maybe they even wanted to be popular, but they were not capable of existing on that plane. As much as Homestead Records was probably a financial failure, it still sets itself apart because Discord or Touch and Go would never have thrown Daniel Johnston right next to a record by Big Black. And when you hand off that amalgamation to a new generation, they're gonna rise up with this as just their basic color palette. And although low-tech had been around for some decades, it hadn't coagulated into a group of artists and a sound and an attitude yet. And this is where the dominoes get set up and kicked off into what we would call the lo-fi movement.
You notice they sound like they're having fun. That's not a characteristic that seems to reverberate from major label music that is about money. This is a background event. This is something that children were doing in the minds of adults. But the underground was supposed to preserve this free world. And I think you could probably hear a palpable depression and sadness set in over the course of Kurt Cobain's life in music. He begins with more playful stuff and he's having fun. And then he eventually just has a permanently furrowed brow as he tries to navigate this prison cell that he's worked himself inside of. beginning of the 80s is the dawn of the independent label era in the sense that the underground really becomes a palpable world. Hardcore bands move outside of the mainstream touring routes and develop what will eventually become an autonomous financial world for music to exist outside of the mainstream structure. Thousands of kids grew up underneath that glow. And for me, like many, many kids, Homestead Records was the most interesting. If I just saw that decrepit logo on the back, I would probably try to buy this record if I had the money. I mean, what kind of label would have Sonic Youth, Big Black, Supreme Dicks, Bad Brains, Truman's Water, Giant Sand, Naked Ray Gun, The Meat Men, The First Dinosaur Record, Nick Cave, SSD, Squirrel Bait, Volcano Sons, Phantom Tollbooth, Neubauten, G.G. Allen, Honor Roll, The Clean, The X, Reese Chatham, Bastro, Tall Dwarfs, King Kong, The Frogs, and finally, they become the flagship label that puts out Daniel Johnston and eventually in 1989 Sebado's The Freed Man. Like a burning man Try to catch me If you can Catch me if you can Got to slow To match your society I hate the day I love the light Got to slow like any elder brother of the 70s would have been handing down his fog hat and rush records to his younger brother it's kind of deeply satisfying to be able to call daniel johnson a classic artist but these facts are now old you know this is fucking 30 years ago now so this isn't my own private history this is everybody's You may remember from the first episode that Les Paul handed over the blueprint for the first four-track recording device without patenting it himself. 
He couldn't have imagined what kind of art would come from his invention, but the fact that he gave it away and just wanted the world to step into the future is such a beautiful gesture. I see a direct through line from that point on to kids like me, thousands of kids upon hearing Daniel Johnston and and Lou Barlow and rushing home with their 99 cent blank tapes in their hand and realizing what could be done with just their pure imagination and hardly any practice skill, but just the ability to render fantastic ideas in real time, just hitting two fucking buttons for really virtually no money and sidestepping the entire industry is a magical fucking world. So scientifically, it is pretty easy to choose a few of the people who have given their entire lives to the church of home recording. Our Stevie Moore gave himself purely without any foreknowledge of a culture necessarily coming right behind him. Daniel Johnston appeared at a kind of crest of technology and the underground celebrating its weirdo heritage with the butthole surfers and Sonic Youth championing him. And at this point of the 80s, the underground was just building and building towards something, but nobody knew what that thing was going to be. There was just an extremely homegrown sense of excitement and inspiration bouncing off of all these completely different groups that seemed to be working towards a celebration of just personal expression without bounds. Sometimes these moments birth perfect characters that can hybridize all of these feelings in the air and composes them into a brief blast that announces a new era. of Guided by Voices in the 80s was this sorely needed magical blast that came from really kind of nowhere and was the ultimate beautiful ugly duckling story for people who were paying attention. 
The seduction of any cult artist has to do with this kind of relationship you form with wanting to root for someone who may never make it or clearly can't. And Robert Pollard was just such an easy person to root for, considering he contradicted a lot of what was supposed to be cool already at the time in what wasn't even called indie rock yet. Crawling out of the cracks of Dayton, Ohio, not exactly the Austin, Texas, or Chapel Hill, or wherever people were saying was the most livable places in the country. He was a school teacher that was known for drinking to blackout on stage. So he was already quite a bit older than anybody trying to become the next Sonic Youth. But because he was older, it ends up that he had a much vaster perspective on music heritage and his vocabulary. Although he didn't grow up a musician, he grew up an athlete. His knowledge for records and his fever for records was so much more intense than anybody else that if he pulled from some early bizarre British 60s sound, it would be coming out in such a genuine way that you might question what decade this was from. a little kid, Robert Pollard started stealing records from a store and he had a recurring nightmare that there was like these super obscure records that he was reaching for on the counter and he'd wake up in the morning and realize they didn't exist. That void of the missing record and the missing concept of some obscure British freak band started fueling this idea of this what-if game that he started to play. He wasn't a musician technically, but his obsession with the records drove this fantasy world where he would make fake bands with fake record covers all day long at school. To a point where he had hundreds of these things and they didn't exist. This is kind of a key to how he unlocked a special angle on writing songs. You would put a great title at the top of the page and you just ask yourself, what kind of band would write a song like that and what would it sound like? And then you just fill in the blanks 
and he's a master at playing this what-if game. stricken with an addiction to making things has a sort of schizophrenic ability to pop between different personalities and right when you think you can predict him that's when he'll shock you with something incredibly poignant Don't stop now, now, now 
top of the line Don't stop now, don't stop Inspired by a friend's compilation of their band's best moments, Robert Pollard began to cut up and slam his songs against each other and experiment with sequencing tricks that would kind of affect your brain in odd ways. And along the way, he became one of the greatest living writers of short songs. Sometimes he feels no need to repeat himself and wants to slam ten hooks into one small space. But in a world where artists want to go on and on and on about themselves, it's such a nice quality to be able to hit the bullseye very fast and then get out. Experiencing the rise of an underdog like Robert Pollard is an exhilarating thing to watch as someone comes out of nowhere that's been denied largely by everyone surrounding them and their family. They've been denied being believed in. And as a kind of Hail Mary to celebrate the end of his career, he announced he was quitting and in 92 self-released 500 copies of these handmade covers of a record called Propeller, sarcastically titled because it implied that it was going to propel them to great success. And one copy made its way to New York City where Matador eventually heard it and the rest became the beginning of their career. You get to watch the most unlikely thing where someone who can write a song as good as John Lennon, who is down in the creases and has no reason to think anyone will ever discover them, is given this hoop dreams chance and they go to New York City and Pavement and the Beastie Boys rush backstage just to surround him and say, you are the best thing we've heard in years. Thank you for existing. And in one circumstance, when Jay Mascus and Thurston Moore are sitting in his green room waiting for him after a show, he just walks in, sees them, and just turns around and leaves because it's too much for him. He's in disbelief. People really like me? He can't even understand it. And he just comes back in a few minutes later just bawling and just puts his arms around them. It's such a beautiful tale. Yeah. 
after Gerard Cosloy left Homestead Records, he started Matador Records, which means he was behind pushing Robert Pollard into public consciousness. And eventually they would get on late night TV and reach a kind of visibility, but ultimately stay with their core fans and kind of define the ceiling as to where this underground movement would go. As all of us who had grown up with this movement watched with our eyes wide, just like the hippies dying their death, we had to accept that there's only so far that this movement could go out into the world and change the way people think. There was a kind of sigh and a kind of sadness as the post-Nirvana world kind of rolled on and exposed that nothing had really changed. Is grunge that much different than hair metal? Well, that's great for you if you feel that way, but it just looks like the same devices at work once things get into the clutches of actual money movement and what that does to psychology. Instead of covering the 10,000 groups that momentarily personified the lo-fi aesthetic, I'm using the hybridizers of the various strains to tell the story in a slightly more linear way. Innovators and hybridizers have always had this dialectical relationship within every evolutionary movement, and they work together even though critics and superfans, including me, often try to side with the innovator. The hybridizer has a very important role. To take these bits of the avant-garde that's been scouting out the further territory and synthesize them into a grand statement. Whereas Daniel Johnston was a kind of innovative forefather of home taping styles, Lou Barlow came behind him as a kind of hybridizer touching on so many different textures and sounds that he eventually proved the cassette four track was a vehicle for high art. Life's true disappointment, helpless in the torment. One of the hallmarks of outsider artists is that they just seem to be born with more courage to hurl themselves in front of everybody and expose their mangled insides. This is at risk of all affirmation, the thing that they seem to be needing and wanting, 
So there's something almost contradictory about the kind of bravery that you see in really ugly recordings. I don't care if the world is dead. Something stupid heroes say. Truth is what you make of it. Anything's fake if it's real. Rather than flexing any kind of technical skill or referencing some classic sound, Lou Barlow broke free into a new dimension of what punk could mean by using the four track like a Jungian device where he could put every terrible feeling and the ability to question his own integrity on every level in front of whoever wanted to watch. There's a kind of ambitiousness being put forward as a watermark here, almost like a Brian Wilson of the lo-fi period and a gentle kind of refashioning of what hardcore could mean if you were going to be hardcore about exposing yourself. Lou Barlow almost brought a kind of perverse joy in showing his hidden femininity. No matter what has happened, you will be okay. You can rise above this, if not tomorrow, someday. I know desperate people with endless appetite for money, sex, and romance. They feed the void, fight the fight. And need to find someone true and ask her what I've seen. happened you will be okay you can rise above this if not tomorrow someday you have the power pick yourself up and walk away I feel so twisted happened you will 
be okay You can rise above this If not tomorrow, today of course, after putting forth this ultra-confessional sound, Lou Barlow got pigeonholed as sort of the pretty one of the group, similar to how Paul McCartney was thought of as the pop singer. But just because it's easy to be that lazy-minded doesn't mean you have to be. This is the point of the freedom of being a called artist. You can sing something that pretty, and the next song can be this. On a pot pie, feeling my head tight. It's a celebration. Feeling my brain's alive. I'm mental masturbation. Skin's falling down the drain. I'm hurting, I'm insane. Say, hey man, where's the light? Smoke some more pot tonight. Popping on a pot pie. So it's kind of on you what your takeaway is, but Lou Barlow covered many different bases and contributed his own kind of self-examination, recuperative music that developed a very hardcore cult of people who couldn't get what he gave them anywhere else. He also had one of the most mystical and evocative sampling styles, shoving haunted bits of weepy country music under clouds of static and tuning in this kind of shortwave alien station. It was unclear whether or not he was comfortable on his lonely planet or if he was searching desperately, sending out a Morse code to be rescued out there. Skittering out onto the edges of what is actually releasable music, I really appreciated his ability to capture things about the human experience that weren't in the attempt to impress, but they were just phenomena. It was just something you were going through, and that seemed worth offering up in the name of research or just plain terrorism. And as the grunge money train came calling and began to speed away with all angsty young rock towards a Hollywood happy ending that never came, there were only a few final glimmers as the flame was largely extinguished for reasons of fashion. And for one brief record, Kathleen Hanna reminded everybody that lo-fi is only a further tendril of punk that preserves its original desperation and attack. Oh, my God. 
Right when our story effectively ended and the lo-fi world was dead, everything went to sleep for about 10 years and a new level of business-savvy slickness was hailed as the true intention of what these people, these pioneers, had really tried to do, which is a complete misunderstanding. But you can't trick younger generations. They'll inevitably start their own backlash movement, which will build and build and eventually become marketed. But in that crease where there's only chaos for a moment, anything can crawl through those cracks. And when it seemed like nobody was ever going to pick the torch back up, the perfect misfit made an appearance. The human race is a pile of dog shit. In my world, I hold the key of wisdom in my hand and lead all the children of the earth to a door they previously believed locked, only to find it open, inviting them to see. You can all kiss my ass. And there is light. In my world, I make medicine. Mankind is a Nazi. And breathe fire from the lakes of honey. And she spoke the melodies of love. And God is a good friend of mine. In my world. To say Ariel Pink was a sorely needed underdog hero would be beyond an underestimation. The world was starving for substance, but in a post-substance world, can you bring a John Lennon into that equation? Who could speak the postmodern language in the correct light that could be integrated? We were lucky that a misfit would be spat out of the lava that was capable of appropriately mocking consumer culture at this deteriorated stage. There'd been unlikely characters who had risen up and mocked the marketplace before, but it was usually obvious in what way they could become a product themselves. Whereas Ariel Pink was more than unlikely, he wasn't really invited. It was almost shocking to watch the press and industry act like this was one of their own because they can only really see music as a meat market party tool to stir the culture in their economic direction. Thank you. 
You could argue that this intention has roots back in an earlier L.A. when because of Frank Zappa's technical aptitude, they'd accidentally let an early terrorist through their gates. You paint your head, your mind is dead. You don't even know what I just said. That's you. After they'd caught Charles Manson, there was this moment where he defended himself by saying, I'm only a reflection of all of you. I'm only a reflection of where we're at in modern society. And as trite and high school as that insight sounds to bring up, it is wildly appropriate for Ariel Pink. Whereas our Stevie Moore was out in the desert by himself before home taping culture really existed, and Lou Barlow was born of the crest of the technology being widely available, Ariel Pink was born into a time where we were all collectively stuck looking back with a kind of bleak future and a totally different kind of challenge ahead of him and us. I think R. Stevie Moore was a king of following his ideas unrelentingly into any kind of horizon. And I think that Robert Pollard was a master of novelty and playing with amalgamations of things he's heard and reassembling them. I think that Lou Barlow is a master of mood taping and capturing himself in really raw forms. But I don't think that Ariel Pink was born into as simple of a time, and I don't think his language and vocabulary could be as simple. Rather than exposing himself, just like his antecedents had done, he brings us nightmares, spoon-feeding the nightmare in a very saccharine shell. Unfortunately, or fortunately, a lot of the audience is too dumb to realize that this is a nightmare. Just like the modern consumer, they think that this is just a really fucking catchy song, which it is, but it's mocking you. And if you can't see that, that is a wild diagnosis on the time we are in. And there is a lot to say about that.
Sorry for getting worked up, but I just get bored of living in a postmodern disaster zone where there's no discernible shape to anything anymore. There's no regional sounds, and it often feels like there is no underground community anymore. So the appearance of Ariel Rosenberg, who for some reason I pronounce Ariel Pink, was a glimmer of sanity for me and also maybe a reclamation of how this whole thing started, this whole industry that you see as like Grammy-winning arcade fires started as a grassroots punk family that really cared about what they were working on and towards and the spirit of rebellion isn't necessarily dead it's just hard to see within the waves and waves of Coachella robots there's a beautiful implication in Les Paul giving you a device that leaves you to yourself that totally melts down the entire capitalist mountain you're supposed to be climbing by learning how to record yourself. The entire idea that you are preparing yourself for the future approval of a cheering crowd that conditions you to spend money entering the industry, hiring experts that craft you, is kind of washed down the drain. That story can become irrelevant when you hold in your hand a 99-cent cassette. No longer do you have to hire an expert and enter this relationship with people who approve of your recordings. This is effectively a new announcement, a new generation of people who have been given their own freedom. Whether they want it or not, it is there for them to discover themselves. Always getting lost. Uh-huh. 